You're listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org. It's great to have the Voiles family read Psalm 95 and Exodus chapter 20. If you'll keep your Bibles open to Psalm 95, if you didn't bring a Bible right in front of you, you're going to see a black book. That's a pew Bible. Go ahead and turn that to page 590, and that way you know if I'm telling you the truth. You never know if a pastor may lie. We're going to begin a series entitled His Worship Matters. And I want to invite you to just camp out there in Psalm 95 with me because I want you to track with me. You know, your worship is a big deal, whether you know that or not. Your worship is a big deal. Think about it. The first children born to a woman, Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel because of worship. Moses comes to Pharaoh so many years ago when he tells Pharaoh, let my people go so they may worship. That was his first request to Pharaoh. Of course, Pharaoh dug his heels in. Then we know that the ancient Jewish people would come to the temple and the tabernacle, and they would bring animal sacrifices for the purpose of worship. Then we remember Jesus who came along, and he spoke to the woman of the well there in Samaria. And what's really remarkable is at the end of that conversation, if you remember that in John chapter 4, they spoke about how to worship and where to worship. And then many of us even remember Speaking of worship, Jesus turns over the money tables. Remember the money changers tables? He did that because they were putting an obstacle. They're putting an obstacle to worship. Your worship matters. Now, most of us have sat through boring worship services one time or another, perhaps other than this one, huh? We have done that. I've preached a few of those in my day. Now, what's the difference in something that's alive and something that is transformative? Well, yes, some of it has to do with the people who are on the platform. Notice I didn't call it a stage. This is not a stage and you're not an audience. The people on the platform who lead, but so much of it is you. And I want to give you three layers that when all three of these layers, your heart, your mind, and your will come together and they unite, when your emotions and when your brain cells and when that active part of you, when those come together, these three layers, and unite, you can experience transformative worship. Keep with me in Psalm 95, first of which I want you to see here, enter into God's presence with your emotions. Now, when we speak of worship, we're meaning enter into the presence of God. And the Bible tells us that we're to bring our emotions into the presence of the Lord. Look again in verses 1 and 2, and we're going to see these on the screen together. Look at all the emotional language here. Let us sing. Let us make a joyful noise. That's a translation of the Hebrew the psalmist would write in Hebrew, and it's a tame translation. He's wanting you to bring your powerful emotions into the presence of the Lord. He wants you to make a noise. He wants you to use your throat He wants you to come out of your shell and speak of his greatness. But the emotional language isn't reserved only for verse 1. Over here in verse 2, we're to come into his presence with thanksgiving. And then we're to continue in making a joyful noise through the songs of praise. The Bible is commanding us that our worship should be noisy and that we should engage with our emotions. Your worship should have an exclamation point. Do you have an exclamation point for your worship? Too many times we come into worship with a question mark or a period. But we need to come in with an exclamation point. We need to have 
something about us where all of our senses and all of our emotions engage. Now, why is that? Well, let's look in verse 3. Because there's a little three-letter word in verse 3, and I'll do this here purposely, for. This is not manufactured emotion. It is emotion because the Lord is a what kind of God? A great God and a great king above all kings. This isn't forced emotion. This isn't pom-poms. This isn't paint my chest because it's a football game, forced emotion, or a yell leader at a certain school. This is genuine. I'm bringing my emotions because the presence of God is here. He is a great God. Now, maybe I need to convince you of that. And one of the reasons we have to convince the 21st century audience that God is great is that science has made great advancements in the how, but science has done a disconnect over the last century or more, several centuries, in the why. Look at verse 4 and verse 5. Here the Bible teaches us the greatness of God because it connects the creator and the creation. In God's hand, in his hand, are the depths of the earth, the height heights plural of the mountains are his also the sea is his for he made it and in his hands formed the dry land see when the psalmist would consider science when the psalmist would consider the celestial skies above they didn't just want to answer the how they didn't want to go to the meteorologist they didn't want to go to the just the scientists and understand more of it there's nothing wrong with that Advances in science are fantastic. We're praying for a huge advance in science as a society, right? In this epidemiologist. But there ought to be an advance in wonder and majesty. I wonder if the psalmist had seen the comet Neowise, what poem they might write today. If the psalmist could just see the average telescope that many of you have in your back patio, I wonder what heights of emotions and poetry and song they would go to. You see, they didn't have any of that. Imagine if they had the Hubble telescope. What kind of psalms? In fact, Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4, David writes these words, the king, 3,000 years ago, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, then he goes from the sky to people. What is man? that you were mindful of him, and the son of man, that you care for him. See, David can write some of the most beautiful poetry. He can sing. He's the sweet singer of Israel. He's a man's man. He's a door kicker. He was a military dude, all right? But he's also infinite in praise. What if David, the one who wrote this, what if David could see Neowise? What if David had the ability to have the Hubble telescope? What if David knew that in one square mile of dirt, fertile soil, there is more insects in one square mile than there are people inhabiting the earth, scientists tell us. What if David knew that in the advances of science that one human cell had more atoms in that human cell than there are stars in the skies at night that you see? You see what I'm saying? We've advanced in our information. We've advanced in our technology. We are in the information age. But there's been a disconnect because we've been taught that there's no creator creating the creation. We need to return and, dis, and, and unhook the disconnect. We need to reconnect the creator and the creation because when that happens, something powerful happens. Our emotions come back. And we look at the Rockies and we look at the Tetons 
And we look at the, the beautiful Palo Duro Canyon and we say, there is a great God in heaven who made this. Even if we go infinite, look at the molecules in our body. Oh, if David were alive today, he could write that praise. By the way, you're alive. Nothing wrong with you doing some praising. Nothing wrong with you getting some emotions. I know I'm talking to this Baptist. I might as well be talking to this uh, drywall here. <laughs> I get it. I've done this before. I love you guys. But the greatness of our God, the greatness of our God when we consider the majesty of his creation in verses 4 and 5. And this is a calculated joy. It's not a mindless joy. It's a joy with a calculator. What kind of joy is that? Jesus spoke of this in Matthew chapter 13. He said, this is the kingdom of God when you discover a treasure hidden in a field. You rebury the treasure, then you go and sell all of your possessions so that you own the land that you can possess the treasure. The treasure is the worship of God. How happy should be the people who are enjoying him and knowing him. We should be people who are like children approaching Christmas tree on a Christmas morning. We have an expectation of tremendous passion and emotion. Does your worship have an exclamation point? Or does your worship, let me give you a mirror for just a minute. I love you. <laughs> Double dog dare you to make me get into this. But now, truthfully, I've been with those worship leaders, those music leaders who, who seem to want to bring pom-poms to the service. And I, I'm a man. I, I'm not all that emotional, any more than most of you. And there's a reverence to worship, and there's a passion and celebration. There has to be an emotional ballast. You know, a ballast will stabilize a ship, right? It'll bring stability to the ship. And what we need is a sense of that worship and passion and reverence coming into one. Now, I don't know about you, but oftentimes when my celebration is high, my reverence is low. When my reverence is high, my celebration is low. It's very difficult to bring both of those two into one place. So we need a ballast. We need a, a tuning of our emotions. Have you ever seen someone tune a piano, tune a guitar, to make sure that the piano is hitting the right notes? Your emotions need to be tuned. Your emotions need to be tuned. And what is that? Well, it's connected to the greatness of our God. See, every person, Romans 1, tells us we have an adoration apparatus inside of us. Every one of you have an adoration apparatus. And all people, all people adore something. Every person is a worshiper. The atheist is a worshiper. The agnostic is a worshiper. The Muslim is a worshiper. The Christian is a worshiper. And your adoration apparatus, when it's fixed to something big, your adoration apparatus expands. What happens to your stomach when you don't put anything inside of it for days? It shrinks, right? And when you don't focus, when you don't put your adoration apparatus, that inside piece that is going to adore something, it's going to fix itself to something, it's going to shrink. But when you attach that apparatus to the God of heaven and earth, the God of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac, the God of Jesus Christ, is going to expand. That's that four in verse three, the greatness of our God in verses four and five. So the emotions that the psalmist is calling for is not the emotion of a painted chest of a football game on a Friday night or a Saturday. It's not the foam finger, a forced emotion or a pom-pom. It is a balance of reverence, as we're going to see in a moment, and a balance of 
passion and emotion that comes with the Lord our God. Does your worship have an exclamation point? Now worship, now catch this. Worship's not just emotions. It's not just mere emotions. You have to add a second layer. The Bible says don't enter the Lord's presence with your emotions, but enter the Lord's presence, enter God's presence with your humility, your humility. Now for the next few moments, we're going to focus in verse 6. And so you need to get your Bible and look with me at verse 6 because here there's a second layer that comes. First is my emotions, but then comes my will, my will. You see, the will is a, is a neglected piece. It's not the heart and it's not the mind. The will is that determining factor. It's that decision-making piece of you. And look what happens to the will, beginning in verse 6. There's three words here. I want you to focus on all three. Beginning in verse 6, the first word I want us to focus on is this word worship, right here in the beginning of verse 6. And the word worship, again, this was originally written in Hebrew and translated for us. It literally means to bow down. That word means to bow down. And to give you a picture of it, I want to take you to Genesis chapter 18. You can just focus me on the screen and look at it perhaps later on your own. Here, a man named Abraham, a great man of faith. We looked at him throughout Scripture about last year, if memory serves. The Bible says he meets three men outside of his tent. Only he quickly realizes these aren't regular men. He's talking to God. It's called a theophany. And look what happens. When he saw them, he ran from his tent door. He's an old man. Old men don't run. He's a man of dignity and honor. And he knows that something significant, someone significant showed up. And he runs to meet them and he worships. That's our word in verse 6 of Psalm 95. Very same word. He bows down. So let's just make sure we're on the same page together. Those of you who are worshiping at home, perhaps it looks like this, to bow. Much like our Asian friends might do in a, in a greeting of a hello. But it's not alone. Verse 6 is not alone with just that word worship. It continues. Let's keep focusing on verse 6. Because then, as if the word bow down in worship is not enough, then we're instructed for God, we're to come. Let's worship and bow down. If the first is a is a bowing down at the waist. This is perhaps a bowing down where my forehead would touch the ground. Now, why is that? Again, everyone worships, and we worship something that we adore, and this is a superior being, the greatness of God. It's a reminder of that. Some things in worship you will not learn until you get into a different culture of worship. If all you've done is worship in the southern evangelical largely Caucasian church, there's some things that you're assuming that you're not, you're not paying attention to. So over in India, some of the mission trips, at the conclusion of a service, people will come up to you and they'll pray and they will ask for prayer. We will have this too here in America. They'll come to the pastor and ask for prayer. Only the moment you through the translator tell them you agree, yes, I'd love to pray for you, then they'll put their head down right in front of you. So the first time that happened, I'm thinking, well, maybe I need to put my head down. They're asking me to put my hand on their head. You know, you don't put your hand on people's head normally. If I came and put my hand on a grown man's head, you know what you'd do? I'll tell you what I'd do. Put your hand off me. You don't own me, boy. Now, why is that? It's because we're not a humble people. America, with our wealth and our might, I was humbled when they humbled themselves before me. It wasn't that I felt superior. When I put my hand there, it intensified my praying. 
it reminded me that I'm really not worthy to be in the position I'm in. The Bible says we're to bow down before a superior being. Like layers to a cake, verse 6 is telling you to worship. Then it comes along and it says bow down, but it's not done there. There's a third verb here. In verse 6 it says, let us kneel. You see that word? Let us kneel before the Lord, our creator. Like layers to the cake, it's adding all three of these. Again, if the first word worship is to bow at my waist, the second perhaps is to put my face prostrate before him. And this, quite simply, is to kneel before the Lord. Why is that? Because you're meeting one who is superior to you. He's superior to anyone and everything that you're aware of. All of me is to submit to all of him. There's a humility here. When I think of this, I think about a a story of Jesus and Peter. Perhaps some of you know this by reading your Gospels. If you know the story, it's, um, it's one of the first times that, that Peter has really met Jesus. And Jesus is teaching the multitudes, and he could teach like nobody. And so to get some space between the multitudes who are pressing him, he says, Peter, would you push your boat out here? He, Peter's been fishing all night. And Jesus uses his boat like a pulpit. So he pushes off, and he gets done teaching. Then he turns to Peter, Luke chapter 5, right about verse, verse 5, if memory serves. He says, Peter, Simon, calls him Simon, both names are Peter, cast your nets right here. Now remember, Peter just met Jesus. He might have known that Jesus was the son of a carpenter. So Jesus is instructing a professional fisherman, Peter, about where to catch fish, and Jesus' vocation is carpentry. Now, if you are a professional in your career, and some yahoo comes out of the backwoods and says, I know more about your vocation than you do, what are you going to do? I love what Peter does next. At thy word, master. At thy word. Next thing you know, Peter and Andrew, they're casting their nets, having fished all night. They've hung their nets up, they're drying exactly what you'd think in the middle of the night if I came knocking on your door, you're already in pajamas. I ain't getting up to meet him. They put their nets and they catch so much fish that two boats are nearly sinking. What do we learn there? We learn that Jesus knows your vocation better than you do. Secondly, when he comes to your area of expertise, you know, you're all that, you know it all, here's how you respond. You respond in humility at your word master. You say jump, I say, well, seven of you got it. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for that. We're to come to the Lord with humility. Now, why is that? Because the Bible teaches us. Let's keep back in verse 7 of Psalm 95. It's because God cares for us. He is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheaves of his hand. The Bible's teaching us this great God that has all of creation, all of the Milky Way in the palm of his hand, he could just reach out and palm it like a great NBA player with a basketball. That's how great he is. But he also cares for you. You are his sheep and he is his shepherd. By the way, I want you to pay attention to these possessive personal pronouns. Not everybody in the room and not everybody watching online can use these. God is not automatically your God. You are not automatically one of his sheep. You have to make a decision to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says, quoting Jesus, that Jesus gives the right to, for anyone to become children of God when you call upon him. Have you called upon him? 
It's not automatic. We say, Pastor, my parents did something with me when I was an infant. It ain't about what your parents did. You've got to make him your God. You've got to make him your shepherd. There's a conscious decision here. In fact, I love this in verse 6. Let's go back. Let's not get in a hurry. You've got nothing to do. It's coronavirus. You're just sitting around Netflixing all the time. Do you notice at the beginning of verse 6, the Bible gives an invitation. It's the word, O come. O come. It's a repeat. You see the same words in the English translation there in verse 1. The very first words is, O come. Our Anglican friends call this Psalm 95 the Vianate, which is Latin for that word, O come. It's an invitation to come into worship. For those of you who've traveled overseas and you've been in a largely Muslim city, they will wake you up before the sun comes up. They're all praying. If you've been in a southern city and you've heard the peals of the church bells, what is that on Sunday morning? It's not just tradition. It's an invitation to worship. Imagine if I stood at the door back there and said, come, come. Come in here. Let's worship the Lord together. Let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the Lord, to the God of our salvation. By the way, have, have you ever used your voice, your lips, your tongue to invite other people to come and worship the Lord? Have you ever done that? You've said billions of words. You've tweeted and Facebooked and Instagram and TikTok. You've done everything, but has your voice ever called someone to say, come? Not come and admire my favorite team. Not come and see my kids or my grand, but come and let's worship the Lord together. I can't think of a better use of your tongue and your lips and your throat than that. You know, I know we have all kinds of allegiances in Texas. We've got Texas Tech, UT, Baylor, the whole thing. But I, I think of that Aggie tradition. I was expecting a whoop there. That Aggie tradition of the yell leader. Several years ago, one of our members took me to my first Aggie football game. Far better than the 11 men on the field was that band and that guy doing all that stuff with his hands. No better. I thought he was landing planes. A yell leader, he looks at the stands and he calls upon people to have enthusiasm. Friend, there ought to be something in you of calling people, inciting worship. By the way, you are a worship leader. Mom, Dad. Grandparents, friend, you are a worship leader. Your boredom is contagious. Your enthusiasm is contagious. Do you have a come, let's worship the Lord inside of you? Let's get after it together. Let's be passionate about this. Now watch carefully. Genuine worship is never just an act of emotion. Genuine worship is never just an act of the will. Watch third, enter into God's presence with your mind. I want you to see the layering effect. All the layers are here in Psalm 95. The emotional piece, the act of the will, and then third and lastly, the act of the mind. Verse 7, the Bible teaches us this. Today, if you hear his voice, if you hear his voice, the Bible is calling upon you to think, use your brain cells, study your Bible. Do not harden your hearts. In fact, he gives us two places that are Spiritual forefathers would have dug their heels in. He says, don't be like them. Think through what you're doing. Bring all that together. Because real worship engages the mind, it engages the heart, and it engages the will. 
I began this message by talking about how so many worship services are boring, but worship can be transformative. Worship can be transformative to you personally. And some of it has to do with the people on the platform or the mood that you're in, but some of it's because you've only got three legs when the table should be four. Some of you are not putting all of it together. You're not uniting together in this. I don't know about you, I, uh, whenever I see August coming, I, I think, why aren't I in Colorado? Why aren't I where the high is like 47 for the day? You know, some of you know I really love the mountains, and I didn't get to see the Rockies till my early 30s, and just transfixed by the Tetons and transfixed by the whole thing. And one of the things that's really fascinating is when you're on those highways, of course, they weren't always there. They cut those highways. And every now and then you'll pass in a boulder, a huge rock, and you'll think, my gosh, how did they, how did they get this road in here? Now, if you've got a boulder the side of your house, size of your house, are you going to take the dynamite to blow that up and put it on the side of the boulder? No, because if you do that, yes, you'll, you'll shear off a piece, but you're going to be dynamiting over and over again. See, what you need to do is you need, if you're going to get rid of that boulder, you're going to drill a hole in the middle of it. And you're going to go deep inside of that. You're going to put the dynamite there and light the fuse. And you're going to back off and you're going to see that boulder blow away and then your highway can come through there. Do you know why God has called upon you to do repetitive worship of uniting together all the mind, the heart, and the will? You know why he does that? To drive the beliefs down inside you. Pastors get this question frequently, and but I think every Christian gets this from time to time. Pastor, friend, whatever, I, I see you Christians, I work with you, I was married to one, I've got kids that have converted to your religion. And what I don't get is there's nothing different about you than us. You've got the same messed up marriage. You've got the same messed up house that I've got. What's the difference in you? You know how to drive out hypocrisy? You drive the beliefs down inside you. We sing our beliefs. We recite our beliefs. We pray our beliefs, and we study our beliefs. The repetitive worship is the dynamite down inside the boulder. We're all hypocrites. Point out a hypocrite this morning. Point at one of them. This is the best one to point to right here. You point at somebody else, and I don't know what they're going to do to you. This is the best one to point. We're all hypocrites. But some of you are attacking worship with only the mind and others with the emotion and only with the will. But when you unite and put them together, then you repeat it frequently. You go back and you sing it, you pray it, and you recite it and you study it. And you teach it to the next generation. Something powerful happens when all three of those layers come together. You worship something. You have an adoration apparatus. Is it shrinking? Or do you have your adoration apparatus attached to the great God of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac? To the God who sit on that Sunday of Easter, come out of the grave? Who walks around, his son does, with the keys to the gates of Hades? 
If you do, your worship, your adoration will expand. Thanks for listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org.